3: presented by at&t connecting changes everything
1: hello everyone and welcome to another episode of inside the studio on iHeartRadio. my name's jordan runtog but enough about me my guest today is a canadian rock god and that's just the top of his lengthy cv which also includes burgeoning tech titan one-time criminology student husband and father of three He's responsible for post-grunge staples like Starseed, Superman's Dead, One Man Army, and of course, the immortal Clumsy. Now he and his group are readying a sequel to their seminal concept album, 2000's Spiritual Machines. Due out later this year, Spiritual Machines 2 picks up where the prior installment left off, predicting the direction of our world with a little help from the futurist author and thinker Ray Kurzweil. The LP doesn't have a release date yet, but fans got a taste with the new lead single Stop Making Stupid People Famous. In case the title isn't a tip-off, it's a socially conscious song with a sense of humor about itself. The debut track also debuts a new sound for the band, an electro-dance-funk fusion assisted by Dave Siddick of TV on the Radio and a guest feature from Nadia of Pussy Riot. Prior to the pandemic, my guest did some excellent lockdown training by holing up on a small remote island off the coast of Canada with his wife, the singer-songwriter Chantal Kreviazik. Together, they wrote songs for a new partnership, calling the duo Moon vs. Sun. They film the sometimes tense sessions for the raw and revealing documentary I'm Going to Break Your Heart, sort of like the Beatles' Let It Be film, but the combination of their musical and marital partnership makes it even more intimate. I'm so happy to welcome the lead singer of Our Lady Peace, Rainn Maida. Okay. So much to, to ask you about. But first off, I want to start with a new album, Spiritual Machines 2. It's a sequel, of course, to your album, Spiritual Machines, from almost exactly 20 years ago. What led you to revisit it? Was it the politically charged mood of the last couple of years? Or was it just the, more of the shock that it was 20 years ago? And it seemed like a good good time to revisit those thoughts.
4: Yeah, well, like you said, it was based on Ray Kurzweil's Spiritual Machines book, which was like this incredible, you know, really highly touted futurist. He made tons of predictions in that book. And it just felt like twenty years later. Let's take a look and see what he got wrong, what he got right. And uh, anyone that knows Ray, who I think works at Google right now, he doesn't get a lot wrong. I'll just give that. Yeah,
1: I think I saw in a press release you said something like eighty-seven percent of his predictions were, uh, were 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 correct, something like that. It's true, and and the thing is, he actually. He didn't get, he really didn't get anything
4: wrong. The stuff that whatever that 13% is just more like he's such a perfectionist, right? It's all about timing. So he says that he got like autonomous cars wrong, but it was really because he was only a few years off. So he doesn't, didn't really get anything wrong.
1: What is it like working with him? I mean, how involved was he in the process of this new record?
4: I mean he's kind of like the muse just in terms of and, and I have to say like with the with the with the new song stop making stupid people famous and even the tone of the record British Machines one was kind of dark and I think even Ray's book was talking about you know a dystopian future that that humanity might have but I guess 20 years later which is kind of cool is that it's definitely more upbeat and the record that we made We made it with Dave Siddick, who, um, you know, he's from TV on the radio, just an incredible producer, like mad genius kind of musician. And with his kind of influence and what we're going for, like this this record has some um, has hips like it's a little bit more dancey. It's it's kind of an anti rock record, but it has a lot of guitars just presented in a different kind of way. And the cool thing about Ray's new predictions, I think he gives five or six on the album. His thing is like technology is going to actually really help the planet and help everything we think that's happening, even like global warming like he, that there's, there's there's ways that technology is going to exponentially help this. With like shortages of food, poverty, he sees like a youth guy coming in. So I was kind of surprised, like, after going through all the culture, he's like, yeah, it's like, this is is not as bad as we make it out to be, which is great. You know, we have a future.
1: So I was going to say, whenever I hear, maybe it says more about me than it does about other people, but whenever I hear that there's a project set in the future, I always assume it's going to be this this dystopian hellscape nightmare. And as you said, I mean, this record's not like that. It's, positive paints this really upbeat view of the future and he touches on things like universal basic income or, or you know AI and, and like you said combating the climate crisis which is great and and, and you mentioned also I mean it, this upbeat sense really does come through at least on the lead single it ha- is almost to me it almost sounded like Scissor sisters meets talking heads or something like that or like a little bit of gang of four in or something what 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 was it like working with uh with, with Dave on this What how did he uh how did he change the uh, the vibe of the sessions The thing with Dave Siddick is he, and he'll, I think he'll admit this. He is
4: a slave to his speakers. So he'll tell you whatever he's working on, whatever he produces, whatever he is kind of, you know, whether he's programming beats or whatever he's doing at the end of the day, he just sits in front of his speakers. Like I am right here. He closes his eyes. And if what's coming out moves him, then it's like, let it go. And you, and he hits a green light and let's work on it. If it's not, it's a total failure and he kind of throws things away so i i love the idea because covid was tough because we weren't actually working together but he would just send tracks and i would literally sit here you know link up download whatever he sends me and i gotta say like 99 of the time i was just like it was kind of like that max elf my hair would fly back and, yeah. I like, and i was just like oh my god i can't wait to sing this and so he's just got that thing you know like he He just has a sense of taking whatever we gave him as a demo or just an acoustic track or a piano vocal building something where you just like, oh, my God, this feels so fresh and new, although it still has like a sense of us. It was perfect. We've never made this sort of reinvention on a record like we have on this one.
1: Oh, I mean, it it sounds incredible. I mean, fresh is the perfect word for it. Getting back to the message of the song, "Stop Making Stupid People Famous." I mean, that really says it all. Tell me about the genesis of that track.
4: You know, I, I think everyone has that person or a collection of people that they could fit in there in terms of why am I giving bandwidth to this person? Why? Why are they famous? You know. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the cool thing is it's more tongue in cheek. Like I think five or ten years ago, me with this song, it would have been a little, a little bit probably too earnest. And just not come off right, but with with the way the track is and like your references are amazing. I love all those, all three of those bands. So Gang of Four, Scissor Sisters, definitely Talking Heads. It's like, and Byrne had a great way of doing that, right? And his music yeah. was like, hey, it's heavy, but let's not be so heavy. And the way to do that is give it a great rhythm, make it slightly dancey, and it kind of takes a piss out of it in a way. So I love the <laughs> fact that it's saying that, but it's not. It's not supposed to be heavy.
1: I love that there's a sense of humor in it. And I think that's some of my favorite David Byrne stuff where he's the alien anthropologist, you know, he's taking like, why are we doing this? Like, why are we all collectively indulging in whatever insane thing we as humans are doing at that moment? You know, I mean, it it kind of highlights the absurdity of of existence at that moment. And that's that's what I love about the message of this song. For sure.
4: And, you know, my wife. Right before COVID, saw David Byrne uh, here in LA with that that crazy tour. He he just oh, finished. Yeah, it was inspiring, and it definitely you have those profound moments in your life as an artist where you see someone and you're like, whoa. That was just next level. So I'm not saying we were able to like grab that, but definitely that stuck with me. It was so incredible watching the band and the way they performed it. It was art, right? So we are hopefully you're trying to bring some of that into it.
1: And I loved that you had Nadia from, from Pussy Riot in there. I mean, it really gave it such a punch. I mean, talk about somebody who became, you know, famous for the right reasons. Can you tell me more about how she got involved with you? Because you you go back to what, South by, right? When you were launching the uh, the record mob app. Oh my God. You know your stuff, dude.
4: Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I love tech. It's kind of like a, a real side hustle me forever. And yeah, we had this basically like a crowdsource. Anyone that has that citizen app that scares you, you know, a man walking down with a machete, what the, some of the, the notifications you get, but we kind of built that app about five years ago. It was crowdsourcing. You know, if you're at a, at a protest or saw a riot happening or a crime that we kind of built this app anyway, uh, we launched it at South by and, and we felt like, okay, we got to do a launch party. And uh, in terms of who fit, that was a musician that had that kind of gravitas as a, as an artist and like social activist, blah, 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 Nadia. So she came and she just, she DJed the set and hung out and, and was part of the launch. And then when it came for the song as well, it was like, yeah, we need some equity. Be really great to have a female singing on this song. Who's that artist? Social justice. And there's a few but with the relationship with Nadia and actually Dave worked with her a couple of years ago. So Dave was like, oh, yeah, sure, let's call her. And she heard the song and two days later it was done. So, you know, really honored to have her on it. And she's a
1: badass. It's such a great track. The video is so cool, too, because I love that it, it gives a spotlight to activists that lay people might not often know. I mean, people like Sophia Mather and Emma Gusti and I mean, so many wonderful people. Can you tell me more about how some of those uh, folks wound up in the uh, in the video? Yeah, we did. you know, we just
4: kept, tried to keep, like, pushing forward with this isn't, you know, what you hear in the title is almost like clickbait. And so the depth in the, in the song comes from, you know, adding people like that, showing even the dancers in the video, like, incredible, you know, unheralded kind of dancers around L.A. And then some of these Future Famous, which is a campaign we've actually started, and... And are hoping just to you know have this thing be an annual thing we just met some incredible people and i I just literally talked to uh, Alyssa carson a couple days ago who is 19 years old she's basically had to dedicate the next eight years of her life she'll be the one of the first um, young females to go to mars so at 19 she's already said i'm doing it and like is literally living in houston at nasa for the next eight years Getting, and, and so when you hear a story, it's like that. It's like, OK, that's who deserves a platform. And then, you know, you have someone like Sophia, who's a, you know, just a, a, a great kind of climatologist. And there's just so many great people out there that, like you said, deserve the platform.
1: Gives you hope. I mean, like you said earlier, hey, we have a future. <laughs>
4: right. And, and, and you know what? It's a great point, Jordan, because I feel like all this stuff is like intersecting where it's like, yeah, that there is there is so much more hope than when you turn on the TV and everything seems doom and gloom, it's like, if you just listen to Ray and you you follow these young people, it's like, man, we're in good hands.
1: Last year, obviously, you weren't able to go out and do anniversary concerts for for the first Spiritual Machines, but you released a a remastered recording and also acoustic live versions of uh, some of the tracks. What was it like for you revisiting those songs? You know, I mean, I I always love asking musicians, you know, they always say that every character in your dream is always you. You know, is is it that way with lyrics? You you kind of revisiting those songs? Did, Did you learn something about yourself? Yeah, I, I, bec- I think because we are
4: in the middle of making spiritual machines too with, with, with Dave Siddick, being able to go back dissect, especially when you when you break down a song, like you said acoustically, like you obviously the lyric becomes incredibly important, the you know melodic notes over chords because you're not you don't have all this other stuff to rely on in terms of like sonically, um, so you get to like the core of the song, which is usually how these songs were born. So it was I think it was a great exercise for me to understand where I was lyrically then how we were writing compared to like the difference that Spiritual Machines 2 was was starting to take and I I think it was very drastic like I said this is actually like a total reinvention for the band but um I think it was I think it was amazing to do that just the exercise of understanding hey that was then was 20 years ago the world was a different place we were different musicians our sound was different and the fact that it's evolved so much kind of made sense and it almost validated. It's like, yeah, we should be we shouldn't just be trying to copy just because it's a follow up to a concept record, we shouldn't be trying to copy
1: any part of it really. It should you would hope something evolves over twenty years, right? And speaking of evolution, I mean, the way the, the delivery mechanism is evolving too, I know that you're releasing one of the singles through uh, NFT, through your uh, the app Sing, which is a Seattle-based tech company that, that you've recently become involved with. As you mentioned earlier, you've been involved with, with tech for a long time now, and it seems like a common thread in all that you do in the technological sphere is about really championing independent creators. How can NFTs benefit musicians?
4: Well, I'll start by saying this, because I know there's been a lot of stigma around NFTs and the fact that, you know, Stevie steveiokis and blouse are making these big bags of money. And it feels like it's for the 1% again. But I, I think that's like such early days of this blockchain technology, which really what it does, it allows us to talk to our fans directly and build these communities without any gatekeepers. Which if you just put that on paper as an artist, you're like, damn that's what I'd love to do. Of course, I'd love to maybe not have to sign a record deal and maybe not have to have a publisher where if I can get my stuff to our fans direct and there's some sort of exchange there, I can actually survive as an artist. And so if you think of it like that, I would propose that if you're an artist, not embracing this and figuring out how NFTs and blockchain can help the artist community is like the biggest crime um, for artists. Because this paradigm now back to where artists have control of their, their, their art again in the way they monetize it, distribute it and build their communities is what we've all been waiting for. You know, it's like if you know, everyone bitches about like the, the rates of Spotify and how you don't make money from that anymore. And we don't sell CDs. It's like, great. Th- that day's done, man. Like this is new and technology has the ability to help us again. So it's, if, if it's because, you know, you feel like blockchain and Bitcoin and NFTs like are harmful to the environment, then find platforms that don't harm, that are carbon neutral. Sing, the, the one that I'm in, involved with, is carbon neutral. There is an answer to every, every excuse can, an artist can make. So there's really no excuse for an artist not to embrace it. You just got to figure how it works for you. But you got to look at the long term of NFTs and what OLP will do with this record. We'll probably actually not, not just one song, Jordan. We're going to release the whole album as NFTs and you so as a fan you'll be able to get that and buy it first before it gets on the Spotify's and Apple and you'll get a ton of other like really cool stuff like I mean exclusive artwork for for each song you'll you'll get like commentary on the songs uh, who knows we're still figuring out but it's going to be way more interactive and and if I was a fan of a band and they were doing this I'd be like dope I can't wait to to participate. Oh
1: totally. I mean I just as a music fan just watching the whole streaming platform system evolve over the last decade, it's been scary because I, I I talk to so many musicians who say this isn't sustainable. You know, I'm worried about the, the generation of musicians under me, how they're going to actually survive and do this. And it's really frightening to think of, you know, how can people actually make a living doing this and continuing to create art and evolve? And it makes me feel better. I mean, again, it gets back to what you said earlier. We have a future. Thinking about these young artists and ways that they are able to to. Monitor monetize and survive if you know if touring doesn't completely cover it
4: yeah man i I mean i know the art world was on it first right because they just they live in that digital space and they and i know young artists that you know have like seven thousand instagram followers so they're not famous like they're not these huge people that can just demand that people come buy their art for something they're making a great living now with nfts so it just shows you like let them lead but if we're not like right on their tails we're the suckers man
1: Really hopeful. I wanted to ask you, prior to, to work, or maybe concurrently with your work on, um, on the new album, you wrapped a project with your wife, this extremely, just intensely personal, really rather harrowing musical project, Moon vs. Sun, where the two of you went to this remote island uh, off the coast of Canada and wrote an album while being filmed for this documentary, I'm Gonna Break Your Heart. Did that experience, being sort of that open and vulnerable push you into something like a spiritual machines too which is not to say it's not personal but it's giving you a narrative to shield yourself a little bit whereas with moon versus sun you're pretty exposed and out there did that somehow impact this new album i think
4: so i think that's a pretty cool point to be honest no one's brought that up before um
1: yeah making
4: that album kind of like just letting it hang out i think at the end of the day what my wife and i showed was really like process and like we're partners we're parents we're like you know obviously we're lovers and and have been together forever so it's like all that stuff coming together and then trying to write music together is really intense you can never have just shown oh wow they're they're way off like four thousand miles away from their home in la on this little french island in the middle of winter and they were just able to write these great songs there was a reason those songs happened and a lot of it usually was like a fight (laughs) that we had to come out of But through that, like, stress and that torment, this song is born. And so it just would have been authentic or inauthentic to not have that stuff. And so we just showed it all. And, like, some of it's, I know it feels a little uncomfortable probably for viewers to watch. But I don't think it's anything crazy. No one gets pushed off the island. No one breaks a door or slams a window. Like, it's kind of tame if you really look back on it. But showing the process is cool. And then I think with Spiritual Machines, it was just, for me, it was doing things that I've never done before. And that record with Chantel and the doc, I'm going to break your heart. I've never done, I've never exposed myself like you said, like that before. And then in terms of when we talked about, hey, we get to work with Dave Siddick on this. This is amazing. What a great opportunity. We can't just kind of like take baby steps. We got to make, we actually have to reinvent ourselves. And so because I went through that as an artist, I was just like, well, yeah, we should, we should go as far as we can to where it feels uncomfortable kind of like that film and that album
1: feeling comfortable uh, with I'm going to break your heart and my wife. I just wrapped a big project on, on David Bowie and there's that great quote. He says, I am paraphrasing with something like the best art comes from when you're uncomfortable, uncomfortable situations. Did you find that to be the case? I live by that quote, you know, yeah. I quoted that.
4: Yeah. If you were to look back through the interviews, especially with my wife and I, their project we have, you know, releasing. And I, I always quote that because I think it is like, I didn't really understand it growing up, you know, in the first 10 years of being an artist, but more and more I've come to understand, like, what is really uncomfortable. And it, and it, and it, it has to be to where you almost, you know, not feel embarrassed, but you, uncomfortable is a weird word because it's, you have to get to that level where it's like almost terrifying. And mm. for, the, for the outside person, it just feels uncomfortable. For an artist, it should almost feel terrifying.
1: What was it like for you? Because you, you began writing together. I mean, you've been been together, I think, several decades now. But you started writing together fairly recently. What is it like writing with a musical partner who's also your life partner? I mean, are you? Is it more of a conversation in lyrics than it would ordinarily be with with somebody else? Did you find yourself like almost having a dialogue as you were uh, as you were writing these songs? Yeah, that's
4: I, I like that because I think that's what we tried to do. Like, she's written, you know, Chantel's written for, I mean, from like Drake to Kendrick and, Lamar and Gwen and all these huge artists and we've written for artists together as well, but never something for us. So the thing was, I think we were waiting and waiting, and waiting to where it's like, not are we going to stay together and we should do this, but like, where do we get to where, okay, we can just be really raw, say shit that no one else would ever say as even as a couple, because only because we've lived and have that luggage and, and have all that stuff. So it was really about, can we do all those things? And, and like you said, make it so it's like a conversation and make it. So it's, it is like people feel like, wow, am I just kind of like the documentary? Are we just sitting in a room with them and they're just talking through this stuff? And, you know, I think we got pretty close to that. My wife's right here bugging me right now.
3: Can I help with that part?
4: Can I
3: start <laughs> in a way that's For the ladies too. No, no, no,
4: this is mine. Okay. This is my time. All right. No. So this- <laughs> yeah i mean it 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 really is that like we have like this amazing you know when you when you've worked with someone on so many different levels you get a shorthand in the writing Mm -hmm. and what i'm i i got to tell you what what i love about it is we write quickly now like songs are just kind of born and they're like what they come out of in like 10 minutes is i don't know it's pretty amazing like it's pretty it's incredible as an artist to feel like wow this is almost fully formed and now we just need to take a little bit extra time and it becomes this amazing stuff. Like the, we've written a bunch of times during COVID and I'm just like, holy, that is like one of my favorite songs I've ever been involved in. So this evolution of like what that documentary and that album, I'm going to break your heart for Sean me means it was like, Kind of the tip of the iceberg. But as soon as you do it, it's like, oh, now this is easy. So I can't wait for the next stuff we, we actually release.
1: I was going to ask, what did it teach you about yourself, either as a musician or as a husband after, you know, two decades in of, of, of marriage, I think? What did that, that experience teach you most of all?
4: I, well, that Bowie quote is it. It's like that that's where the best art is made. And Our Lady Peace has moments where I felt vulnerable and stuff. But with, with I'm Going to Break Your Heart with Chantel... It's all like incredibly vulnerable, but that's why I think it's so special. So I I think for everything we do now, and like you said, even with spiritual machines, I had to put myself where I was like, man, this is weird. Like, this isn't what I do, or I've never done this before. How do I insert myself here? And that was it. You just have to like push through and, and get over that terrifying feeling and all those butterflies. And even what you know, we were talking earlier about you asked me about Dave Sick and what I was like working with them. I would get these tracks and if I were if I were not to be like courageous and say, Yeah, of course I can sing in this, part of me like probably would have been like, Oh, this is this is too progressive for our lady piece. I shouldn't do this. But it was like forget it, this is what we're doing. I have to be a little bit scared and that's what makes it fun.
1: talked about how new songs are born now in a way that's different than, than it used to be for, for you and Chantel. Do you find that the, that the best songs come faster, the ones that are almost sort of delivered from on high, fully formed, or, or do you find it more fulfilling for the ones that you really, you know, maybe six months, a year, almost like a sculptor getting every little bit right, which is uh, most fulfilling for you?
4: Yeah, I, I probably have ADD. I love it when I feel like these things were just channeled through me. Yeah. And, and the and the first song that that started Chantal and I writing together was a song called "I Love It When You Make Me Beg," and literally that was another one of those. It just it was two a.m. in the morning. We we're in here. I picked up a guitar. She was sitting at the piano, and we wrote this chorus for "I Love It When You Make Me Beg," and it was kind of like orchestrated, bum 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 bum, and it was just like, how did this happen? But it took like another ten minutes to finish, and that because of that. Just that dynamic and the fact that it was quick, it was like, oh, we can do this easily. You know, where I think if if it would have been a struggle and like you said, you had to sculpt it and take months or or weeks. I don't know if you would actually make an album. There's something about catching that moment
1: right there that is so beautiful. Somebody who's loved music his whole life and has never been able to write a song ever—that just sounds like sorcery to me. I mean, the fact that it, it can come that quickly and that it, that it can just happen—I mean, where there was once nothing, now there is something. That's literal magic. You're actually pulling a rabbit out of your hat. There's no trick.
4: trick. Yeah, but it pro- it probably took 15 years to get there. So, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of woodshedding first.
1: How has the last uh, year and a half? been for you i know obviously it's been uh, i f- almost feel like the uh g- going to that island must have been uh good training for the last year i should say yeah
4: i mean it was because you know we i think everyone was on their own island during covid yeah. and so i mean look i'm sitting in a studio we I, I, unfortunately you know we haven't had the same hardships as, as some families but i do know we have had close friends that, that passed away from covid some engineer friends of ours and people in the industry right. yeah so that that was that was just tough you know but ultimately we are always looking for those silver linings. And, um, you know, we have three young boys. My oldest started this weird. Like we live in LA. It's all basketball. All my kids are ballers and that's all they yeah, care about. Yeah. And one of my kids plays on this incredible travel league, like literally the number one kind of team in the nation called Compton magic and takes up a lot of his bandwidth. When that slowed down, he was able to go back within that year and a half. He turned into this like incredible artist. Like literally you talk about like the way that generation consumes like Kendrick, like a playlist they'll have Frank Sinatra, Bowie, Kendrick, oh my God, from like James Blake to Daniel Caesar. And for him, it just all comes out, but it sounds like him. And I'm like, whoa, what is this? So he's been able to really become an artist. And I, I, I if I were to think, wow, if we didn't have COVID and he was just doing his thing and starting high school and playing basketball, dabbling a little bit in music, who knows? But he wouldn't have been where he is right now. And right now, we're sitting on a you know an EP that to me is my God, it's mind blowing. Like I listen to it and I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. This who is this kid? And so you know you just you gotta you know you find ways. And I think at the end of the day, what COVID probably did was make everybody, no matter what you do, tap into your creativity a little bit more and reconnect yeah. with that. Even though if you felt like you were never creative in your life, I think it just forced you to try to be creative. Whether it was like, how do I make money to pay rent, or how do I like not just binge watch Netflix for 17 months or or whatever it's just like you were forced to somehow be creative again which is
1: kind of interesting yeah that is i, I hesitate to use the phrase silver lining but that is a a really wonderful positive to come from the last year and a half that, that is amazing it's been really humbling the last 10 years or so to to meet teenagers who have better taste in music at 14, 15, 16, that I do now at age 34 because they just have access to it. I, I grew up in a small town in, in New England where, you know, there's one record store and you'd be lucky if they had something, you know, slightly left to center. And now they just have to complete access to record a history of sound right there. And that's, and the influences that they are able to synthesize at such a young age, it's so cool. I mean, that, that also gives me hope.
4: Yeah, I was always worried with, with you know, with Spotify and stuff and Apple watching kids because they don't even finish a song. Like they listen to like end the first chorus and then they skip through. No one listens to albums. I was like, damn, how is this gonna work in terms of the new generation of artists? But I think what I saw with my kid, it's like, yeah, they they can put the best pieces of all these different artists in the playlist. So what they're getting is like literally like when you talk about like from Sinatra to Daniel Caesar to Kendrick to to Bowie, to James Blake, it's like the best of the best and the best songs for them from those artists as well. So they're starting at a level creatively where it's like, he'll write a piano riff. I'm like, how did, like, did you steal that? Where did that come from? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I'm just like, this is incredible. Like, please tell me this. is. And he's like, I swear, dad, this is mine. And so, yeah, it's just, it's, it's pretty inspiring. Like you said, uh, there's a lot of hope for the next gen artists and those creators, they just get it.
1: You know the uh, the dust to digital social media account on I think it's on Instagram and Facebook. I was lucky enough to have a chat yep. with the guy who runs it, and he was saying he has this theory that every thirty years there's a new genre that that supplants the next. You get jazz in the the 20s, and the 1950s you start to get rock and roll, and then around 1980 you start to get hip hop. And then he was saying, you know, I was thinking about 2010. What's the what's the new genre? And then it occurred to me it's everything with a capital E it's and that, and he says right on the money It was 30 years after, you know, 1980 when hip hop started becoming mainstream with people like, you know, Blondie or Grandmaster Flash or whatever. Uh, It was right there, right. When uh, Spotify came through and it was, it was an interesting, interesting way to think about it.
4: Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I'm trying to actually, I'm trying to buy in, you know, I'm trying to make playlists now of just uh, tried and true. Like I love to listen to albums all the way through and get lost. But uh, you know, I go on these long drives, and I'm like, you know what? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna pick a bunch of great artists and put it on shuffle. I'm like, damn, it's it's actually because you're 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 getting you know bounced around as a creative. I'm like, okay, I I just heard something that was you know Nick Cave, uh, really mellow and beautiful strings and as low you know kind of baritone, and then I'm listening to Bjork or you know some other new artist, and and it's just like you know what? Okay. There's actually ways these things can intersect and filter together. And I don't know if I would, you were able to do that before, as easy yeah. as you can now.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, just finding those connections. It's really fascinating. I mean, speaking of albums, is there a, uh, a release date set for uh, Spiritual Machines 2? I know you're getting that question a lot, I'm sure.
4: We are. The, so definitely, it looks like end of October. We want to do this NFT thing in September so fans really get to feel what that's like and hopefully be a use case to be honest i'm so deep in the nft world and and i and you've heard me like how passionate i am in terms of how i think this is the future for artists that i want to i want the our lady piece record to be an easy use case for other artists to be like oh i get it like that's easy i'll release these packs with all this bonus content and at the end of the day it makes i've never felt so creative because now i know that our album won't be just some thumbnail on on your phone right it's gonna (laughs) have it it can live and breathe in bigger pieces of art and and different types of mediums and and collectible stuff so hopefully yeah over, over the course of september we can release the album as an and then it comes out kind of worldwide on the dsps in in october oh man well
1: september we can't wait i mean thank you so much for your time today and your music it's been such a pleasure really appreciate it
4: jordan man what a great interview you uh you scare me you know so much but i appreciate it
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Inside the Studio, a production of iHeartRadio. For more episodes of Inside the Studio or other fantastic shows, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.